There are few things more difficult that any of us will have to deal with than family drama. And I'm not talking about the small, petty difficulties that we all have to work through. That's part of living life and as sinners in a sinful world. I'm talking about the family drama that are serious conflicts, the kind that leave permanent scars. In Genesis 27, we have perhaps the most famous account of what you could lightly call family drama that we find in the whole Bible. And really the whole family here, the chosen family, the covenant people of God, every one of them appears in not a very good light. This famous story shows us the ugly side of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. It also shows us round three of the struggle between twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. First at birth, they had struggled together. They came out entangled already, grappling, wrestling. Jacob had grasped Esau's heel. Then they had later negotiated over the birthright. Jacob had won that, swindled his brother out of that birthright. And now they are in conflict over the paternal blessing, the blessing of of Isaac, their father. And the seeds of their brotherly rivalry, if matters aren't bad enough, are watered by the partiality of their parents. Isaac and Rebekah make things worse. There's really one idea to the text this morning. If you're a note taker, you can jot this down. Sinful desires lead to conflict, but God's sovereign plan is greater than our sin. Sinful desires lead to conflict, but God's sovereign plan is greater than our sin. We see this point kind of unfolding throughout the story. There's not really an outline this morning, more of just tracing sort of the narrative arc that we find. And really, if you'll look back in chapter 26, starting in verse 34, we find the setting and also discover the crisis. We see the foolishness and favoritism displayed by both Isaac and Esau. Look back in chapter 26, verse 34. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beiri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. The words of Isaac to his son Esau reveal his intentions. He is fully planning to bestow the paternal blessing upon Esau, who's referenced here as the older. Even though they're twins, one of them came first, and it was Esau. Isaac wanted him to be the bearer of blessing, the bearer of the covenant promise. But there's several problems with Isaac's plan. First of all, he's ignoring the word of the Lord. God had chosen Jacob, the younger, to be the bearer of blessing. You remember back in chapter 25, verse 23, the older shall serve the younger. That's what God had said, but Isaac doesn't seem to like that plan. The second problem is that Esau, not only was he not the one chosen by God, but even Isaac's judgment here is to be questioned because Esau was a man devoid of character. He was completely unfit to receive such a blessing. And we see that here in verses 34 and following of chapter 26. You know, often our choices in romantic relationships reveals whether our allegiance is to God or to ourselves. Sadly, many of us have witnessed that in the lives of people we love. Some of us perhaps here today have even made those kinds of mistakes ourselves. Esau's choice of wives, plural, from the Hittites confirms our original impression of him from back in chapter 25. Remember back in chapter 25, we saw that he was impulsive. He was foolish He was ruled by his appetites and his desires. That's why he sold his birthright to his brother for simply a pot of stew. He completely disregarded the honor of his family in doing so. And we see those same character qualities displayed here in verse 34 of chapter 26. He took wives that grieved his family. They made them miserable. 
How different than the pattern that had already been established for the family where the parents had been involved in selecting a wife that was from their own clan. Isaac had married with his father's blessing, but Esau marries despite the desires and the wishes of his parents. And he marries outside the clan, which was ignoring the promise of God that the people of Canaan, including the Hittites, were to be displaced. They were going to be judged, and the land was going to be given to the descendants of Abraham. Esau doesn't seem to care about that. And he takes multiple wives, showing that him satisfying his desires, rather than submitting to God's design, was his top priority. He's proven his character in the past, and it's now confirmed here in this scene. He is unworthy to be the heir. And it's not like Isaac was unaware of this. I mean, remember, Esau's choices brought pain and misery to his family. His wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Our sinful choices always affect others. Yet, in spite of all this, Isaac plans to bless Esau. It makes us ask, why? Why would Isaac do this? Well, there's a simple answer. Because he's the favorite. Isaac simply wanted to. And his foolish preference for Esau meant that he was planning to bless him despite his faulty character, despite the word of the Lord, and even despite the transaction that had taken place between Jacob and Esau back in chapter 25. So this is what Isaac is planning to do. We see foolishness and favoritism. This is the crisis. What's the solution to this crisis? Well, sadly, it's a solution that actually complicates matters further. We see in verses 5 through 29 a scheme by Rebekah to fix, quote-unquote, this problem by deceiving Isaac. Look in verse 5. It says, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Rebekah, like Sarah, her mother-in-law before her, is listening. Apparently, tents are not very soundproof. And you would think that the patriarchal family would have figured this out by now. You remember back when the Lord was speaking to Abraham, And said that this time next year, your wife Sarah will bear a son. Sarah's listening. She's eavesdropping on the other side of the the tent flap. And she laughs. Well, we have a similar scene here. Rebecca is eavesdropping. And she hears Isaac's plan. Now, if Isaac didn't like God's sovereign choice, that the older will serve the younger. And that's his, his failure. It's apparent here that Rebecca didn't trust God's sovereign power to bring about that which he had promised. So she thinks she needs to help God. She needs to manipulate the situation and force the outcome that she desires. And it's not just because she's so humble and so committed to God's word. Just like Isaac has his favorite, Rebecca prefers Jacob. So she resorts to deception. She comes up with her own plan, a scheme to deceive her husband and to deprive Esau. It's interesting here what's lacking. There's no prayer. Oh God, deliver us. Bring about your word and your will. You don't see any of that. There's no appeal to Isaac. Isaac, consider how much misery Esau's choices have already brought upon our family. How much shame he has brought to you. Don't bless him. She doesn't appeal to the word of God. Remember the oracle of the Lord spoken when these sons were born that the older would serve the younger? No, none of that. All we see here is simple self-reliance. She is resourceful. You've got to give her that. But she's going to make it work out the way she wants. Again, Isaac may prefer Esau, but Jacob is her favorite. And he's the promised heir. And Rebekah is determined to see him blessed instead of Esau. We see the plan for this deception in verses 6 through 17. Well, we'll start back in verse 5. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, so... When Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Little rabbit trail here. These sons are of marriageable age. They're not, you know, 13 or 14, probably 30 or 40. She says, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. That's her instruction. 
But Jacob says to Rebekah, his mother, he's a little bit apprehensive here. Notice what he says. Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. He's worried about this. He says, listen, if I get caught, this is not going to go well for me. He doesn't seem too concerned about dishonoring God. He doesn't even seem that concerned about dishonoring his father. He's most concerned about the consequences of dishonoring his father, the curse that could fall upon him. But notice what Rebecca does. She assures him that it's going to be okay. She doubles down and says, let your curse be upon me, verse 13, my son. Let your curse be upon me. She's bound and determined to see this through. Only obey my voice, she says, and go, bring them to me. So Jacob concedes, and he gets everything ready in verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, that's the goats, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. You have to wonder here if she's a little bit jealous that Isaac is so excited about Esau's cooking and not hers. She's like, I can outdo him. So she cooks the goats. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And then the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. The meal's the meal is prepared. Jacob is clothed with his brother's garments so that he'll smell and feel like his brother and even takes the goat skins and puts them on him. They're literally going to pull the wool over Isaac's eyes. And then we see the deception carried out in verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father... And he said, here I am, who are you, my son? His eyes are dim. He can't see very well. Remember, these brothers are twins. They're the same age. It's likely that their voices sounded similar. And he wanted to know who it was that was speaking to him. Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. There's a lie. He continues, I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? You know, it takes a while to go hunt and find game and then kill the game and then drag it back to camp and clean it and dress it and cook it. And this has all happened much more quickly than Isaac anticipated. Well, Jacob's already in this far with a lie, so he continues. He answered, And this is troubling. He brings God into it. He says, because the Lord your God granted me success. What an ironic explanation. What an ironic explanation. The Lord, notice he doesn't say our God or my God. He says, the Lord your God granted me success. And we'll get to this point in a moment, but I have to point it out here. You know, Jacob and Rebekah are taking everything into their own hands. Why didn't they trust the Lord to grant them success? He knows that that will mean something to his father, at least, and so he pulls that card out now. The Lord your God has granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. It's likely that he knows the character of his younger son. He's a little bit suspicious, and the voice doesn't make sense to him. So Jacob, Jacob, verse 22, went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, But the hands are the hands of Esau, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He blessed him. Their plan is successful. We see this in verses 21 through 27. Isaac trusts his senses and is deceived. What he feels, what he tastes, what he smells, he blesses his son. Look in verse 24. He said, are you really my son Esau? He said, answered him, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. And then he follows through and actually pronounces the blessing. He's trusted all his senses. He's been deceived. 
And he confers the blessing upon Jacob. Now notice the content of this blessing because this is important. This is what these brothers are fighting over and it's very, very significant. Isaac says, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. He pronounces over him, first of all, blessing from God. May God bless you. May God provide for you. May God enrich you and make you prosperous and meet your needs and overwhelm you with the joy of his blessings. We see this with the dew of heaven. In a land so often stricken by famine, to have water was a great resource and a blessing. The fatness of the earth means the best of the earth, the cream of the crop, plenty of grain and wine means much bread, feasting, and rejoicing. Blessing from God is the first element. But secondly, he pronounces over him the blessing of dominion and authority over other people, nations, and even brothers. He says in verse 29, let the peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. God had promised Abraham and Isaac prominence, greatness, that they would possess the gates of their enemies. And we see those same elements of the covenant blessings now passed on to Jacob. And then that very Abrahamic statement at the end of verse 29, cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed is everyone who blesses you. That's what had been promised to Abraham, was passed down to Isaac after him, and now is conferred to Jacob, who was the younger but yet the one who is destined to be the bearer of the covenant blessings. And it has now been pronounced over him. Success, right? Everything has worked. Well, unfortunately, we see that their plot is discovered in verses 30 through 40. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. The timing here is amazing. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Uh Uh-oh. They didn't really make a plan for this, did they? They had planned a lot of other stuff to solve a lot of other problems, but they had no plan for what happens next. Verse 31, Esau also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Verse 32, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. No sooner had Jacob left the room than Esau walks in, and their plot is discovered. It doesn't take long for Isaac and Esau to figure out what happened. I want you to pay attention especially to the intense reaction that we see in both Isaac and Esau. We see in verse 33 that Isaac trembled very violently. This is a physical shock to his system. He's not just bummed out like, oh man, that's not what I wanted to happen. He is deeply disturbed by this. Why? 
Well, consider first of all that in this culture, it wasn't like ours. We are very used to, you know, equal opportunity for everybody and a fair share for everyone. But in this society, the older brother had rights. And for things to be upside down was a shock. It was a shock to him. Esau was his favorite, and now he would not be able to bless him. That is a shock to him. But even more than that, his wife and his younger son have made a fool of him. What a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach to know that there's a knife in your back from the people that are supposed to love you and trust you and respect you and honor you. He trembles very violently, the text says. He's been betrayed not only by his wife and son, but he's also been betrayed by his senses. He thought he was blessing the right son, but he realizes that his sense of taste, his sense of smell, and his sense of of touch, they've misled him as well. Notice the reaction of Esau. He lifts up in verse 34 a great and bitter cry. He's been deprived by his brother and his mother. Victor Hamilton comments, if Esau has made life bitter for Rebekah by marriage, Rebekah will make life bitter for Esau by manipulation. One bad turn deserves another. And he's realizing the sting of payback. He begs for blessing three times in verse 34, verse 36, verse 38. But every time it's denied, Isaac refuses to bless again. He says right off the bat, yes, and he shall be blessed. He said, I bless someone else. And it's done. I've already spoken, and I cannot revoke my word. What he has vowed, the prophetic word he has spoken, it must come to pass. Why? Well, it's because if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, this blessing has been spoken before the Lord. You see that in verse 7. This blessing is spoken before the Lord. In Numbers 30, verse 2, this is obviously much later the writing of the law, but God's desire, what is right when it comes to vows, was spelled out. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Isaac knew that it would be wrong for him to break his word, and he refused to do it. In addition, Victor Hamilton comments that there was probably no socially acceptable legal procedure for rescinding a paternal blessing. There's really nothing he can do. I love what Derek Kidner observes, that Isaac knows he's been fighting against God, as Esau has, and he accepts his defeat. He says, I blessed someone else. Your brother has taken away your blessing, and it's done. And I give up fighting against God's plan. He knew. He knew deep down inside that Esau was not worthy of this blessing. He knew deep down inside, that it was God's will that the older would serve the younger. And he even knew what had happened with the birthright. And he says, fine, I give up. This is apparently what is supposed to happen. Already we see that Esau's pain is turned to anger against his brother in verse 36. He says, he took away my birthright. Well, actually, Esau, you sold it and kind of threw it away. So that's not really fair. Then he continues, and he took away my blessing. Well, that's fair enough. He did do that. And Esau bitterly remarks that Jacob's name is indeed fitting. Jacob Jacob can mean, if you spin it positively, may he, may God, be at your heels, sort of as a rear guard in a military sense, somewhat like saying, God has your back. But it can also have a negative sense, as in usurper or heel grabber, one who's overreaching. And it's in this sense that Jacob's name is truly fitting. He's always grasping. He starts off life as an antagonist, grasping his brother's heel. He later grasps for the birthright. He's now grasping and taking, usurping the blessing. Later we'll see that he's wheeling and dealing, trying to grasp for a wife from Laban. And in the end, we'll see that Jacob even grapples with God himself, wrestling with God. Jacob is indeed a fitting name for this man who's the bearer of the promise. Although Esau pleads repeatedly for a blessing from his father, Isaac says, there's nothing left. I've already promised it all to your brother. Isaac does make a pronouncement over him. We see that in verse 39 and 40. But this blessing really sounds more like a curse, doesn't it? It, But really, when you think about it, though, as you look at it, 
we have to understand that this, this oracle, this pronouncement that's made over Esau is simply a confirmation of the path that Esau has already chosen. A profane life of disobedience, a life of worldly pursuits, this is simply the natural consequences that such a life brings. The authors of the New Testament pick up on this. You don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews chapter 12, there's actually a warning to us not to be like Esau. In Hebrews 12, 16, the author of Hebrews writes, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, and he's pointing back here to chapter 27 of Genesis, afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a sobering passage. The point is this. There are some decisions that you may make that you can never take back. Though you seek repentance with tears, though you say you're sorry, you may not be able to change the fallout from some of your choices. This is especially true in the realm of of immorality, which is what the author of Hebrews is specifically talking about here. For Esau, it was too late. The consequences of his choices and the consequences of Jacob's, they cannot be avoided or undone. And Esau is going to reap what he has sown. There's a warning here for us. Yes, God can forgive you, and he will. He promises to. And the eternal consequences of your sin can be graciously avoided. If you find shelter in the cross of Christ, if his blood cleanses you, then Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. But God does not promise us that we will escape the earthly consequences of our sin. We may still bear the sting of reaping what we have sown. And we see that painfully evident here in the life of Esau as Isaac pronounces this oracle over him. And you know what, as sad as this story is, it actually gets worse before we get to the end of the chapter. We see that the results of all of this, the results of, of Isaac's foolishness and favoritism seeking to bless Esau, we see the equally foolish and sinful plans of Rebekah to deceive her husband and deprive her son. We see Jacob's complicity in these plans and we see all the fallout from that really brings us to a fractured family. The solution to the problem has actually made things worse. Verses 41 through 45, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Mom's always listening, right? So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, once again, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both? In one day. We see in verse 41 that Esau plans revenge for the future. He had had enough. And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get even. I'm going to settle the score. Like Cain before him, he intended to kill his brother. But unlike Cain, he doesn't fly off the handle and kill him right away. He rather is cool and calculated, and he waits for the right time. He says, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. I know my dad's going to die soon. I'm not going to do this while my dad's still around. I'll wait till he's off the scene. But when dad's gone, then I'm going to take care of business. But mom is listening again. Someone informs her of Esau's plans, and she warns and instructs Jacob a second time. Jacob must flee to Haran. That's her hometown. That's where she's from. Perhaps time will heal Esau's hurts, she hopes. However, even decades later, as we'll see in the upcoming chapters, Jacob is not so sure about that. He knows, like we do, that time doesn't heal all hurts. In the end, Jacob will take his mother's advice and he will flee. 
And many authors think that this is the last time that Rebecca will actually see her son. She's never mentioned again. And it seems evident that she probably passes away while he's gone in Haran. So Jacob secures his brother's birthright and the blessing, but at what cost? The family is fractured. The family is fractured. Isaac is put to shame, dishonored by his wife and his younger son. Rebecca is separated from her favorite son, likely never to see him again. And there's murder in the heart of Esau. The end, right? And they all lived happily ever after. That's not really how this story ends, at least not yet. You know, there's a lot for us to learn about ourselves in this story. It's kind of depressing, but really this story is a fitting description of human nature. We see a painful reminder here of our own sinful condition and our need for grace. You see, even the best of us, though we are blessed by God, though we've been provided for in every imaginable way, we manage to make a mess of things, don't we? Our sin corrupts, it fractures relationships, it distorts God's good gifts. Our desires are fundamentally idolatrous and distorted, self-centered and sin-infected. That's what we see with each character in this story. Twisted desires that leads to pain and heartache. But friends, consider this. This is the mess that Jesus came down into and entered. He had to come because of our sin. We had no hope of fixing this problem, the mess that we've made by our wicked and corrupted desires. But Jesus came and he lowered himself to enter into our mess so that the cost for our sin could be laid upon his shoulders. The more that we try to fix things, the worse we tend to make it. But Jesus is the one who came to provide redemption, to heal and to restore, to forgive and to cleanse, to redeem. Our sin was laid upon his shoulders so that we could be delivered from the wrath of God and rescued from our own hopeless and self-inflicted predicaments. You know, there's really two fundamentally different ways to understand the human condition. And this is counter to what our culture says and what sometimes we even tend to believe. You know, there's one way of viewing humanity, and that's to say that all the problems are out there. The problems are structural The problems are with education. The problems are with our financial arrangements or we just haven't met the right person yet. And that the solution is deep down inside. All you have to do is watch the NCAA tournament. You know, well, how did you win this game? We just believed in ourselves. We dug down deep. You know, that's common. And I know that's just athlete speak jargon for interviews. But that's how some people see humanity. The problems are out there. The solution is deep down in here. If we can just find the answers, we can make this better. But you know, the Christian worldview is completely opposite from that. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And friends, our world, they don't get this. They don't understand this. They look at all of the horrible accounts of sexual abuse that's taking place right now that are being uncovered, whether it's in the political realm or the the entertainment realm. And they say, why would people do something like this? Well, sexual immorality, adultery, evil thoughts comes from the heart. People look at the horrible uh, mass murders that are happening right now, these shootings in schools and other places, and they're trying to find the reason why. Well, maybe it's the video games they played. Maybe it's the movies that they watched. Maybe it's the fact that they didn't have enough mental health uh, therapy and training and support, and maybe some of those things contribute, but the ultimate reason, where do murders come from? It comes from the heart. Guys, we are fundamentally broken. This is human nature. Jesus says as much in Matthew 15. We read in Jeremiah that the human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. The old King James says desperately wicked. Our sin is a sickness. Who can know it? 
Why do we experience conflict? Why do we have racial tension? Why do we have marriages that fall apart? Why do we have parents and children that are estranged from each other and won't speak? Why do we have war? Why do we have crime? James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights from among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. That sounds like Esau, doesn't it? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says the reason you have conflict is because of your passions. And the reason you lack what you want is also because of your passions, because you're idolatrous people. Guys, the reality is this. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And the only solution is not inside us. It is outside of us. And this solution's name is Jesus. He's he's the only one that can fix our problem. Only Jesus can give us a new heart. Only Jesus can change our desires. Only the living word, as we encounter him in the written word, can rewrite our story and make us, as Paul says, into a new creation where the old things pass away, the old desires, the old idolatries, the the old inclinations towards murder and theft and immorality. And slander. Only Jesus can do this for us. Jesus told the disciples as he was washing their feet, Peter had a problem with it. He says, You shouldn't be washing my feet. Jesus said, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. That's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because no one can. There's no other resource that we have to fix our problem. We learn a lot about ourselves as we look at Genesis chapter 27. We learn about our need. We learn about the depravity of our own hearts. And it becomes very evident that we should never try to fix things ourselves because we always make things worse. But not only do we learn something about ourselves, we learn something of God. You know, the only time God is even mentioned in this chapter is in Jacob's ironic lie. The Lord your God has granted me success. But the reality is God is at work, even if he's ignored and forgotten by all the characters in this story. We see God's redeeming grace here. Despite all of this ugliness, despite all of this mess, despite all of their failures, this family does not forfeit the blessing. I mean, God could have just said, you know what? Suit yourselves. If that's how you're going to act, I'll find another family to work through. I'll find another chosen people to bring blessing to all the families of the earth through them. People who act more like me, people who actually trust me, people who obey me. But God doesn't do that. Amazingly, they don't forfeit the blessing. Aren't you glad that that's how God operates? We see the glory here of God's grace, God's faithful grace. Although man is unfaithful, nothing Nothing, nothing can nullify the faithfulness of God. I hope you believe that this morning. Our God is a God who keeps his promises. We've seen that again and again and again. The oath that he swore to Abraham, the oath he confirmed to Isaac, it would surely come to pass. God said in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, as he makes promises to Abraham, he says, by myself I have sworn. People swear by the highest thing they know, the greatest power, the most valuable possession. That's why in courtrooms people, amazingly still, by tradition, swear on the Bible. Because it's true, it's transcendent, it's valuable, it's precious, it's authoritative. God swears by himself. There is no deeper promise. There is no bigger oath, no more powerful, more binding promise he could make. I, by myself, I have sworn, and nothing can nullify God's promise. Not only do we see God's faithfulness as he does not remove his blessing from this family, we also see God's sovereign grace. Here's the amazing thing. God's desired outcome for this family is achieved, not just despite their sin but even through their sinful actions, God brings about his plan. That's pretty deep stuff. If you think about that, it's hard to wrap our minds around. 
But God is sovereign, even over their sinful corruption. Isaac resisted God's plan. He ignored Esau's wicked character and played favorites. There's obviously sin there. Rebecca manipulated her husband instead of trusting God. She cheated her older son, corrupted her younger son, led him into sin. There's sin there. Jacob follows the bad counsel of his mother, deceives his father, deprives his brother. Esau lives for self, brings misery to his family, despises his birthright, hates his brother, plots murder. He follows his own appetites at all times, whether it's for a meal or for wives or for revenge. I mean, all we see is sin in this family. And yet, this is the chosen family, God's covenant people. We ask, can God really make something good come out of this? And the biblical answer is yes, he can, and he does. Even their sinful choices and actions are not beyond redemption. In God's gracious providence, he's able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Jacob, for all his failures, was the chosen heir, and God intended him to be so. That doesn't excuse Rebecca's sin or Jacob's to get that blessing. But that was God's desired outcome. Through Jacob and his son Judah and his later descendant David would one day come Jesus, the Christ, who would bring the promised blessing of salvation to all the families of the earth. And as you read this story, not just in Genesis, but in the life of David, you look at David's ancestors at Ruth and Boaz and that whole story. You look at the story of Joseph. You see God's sovereignty even through sin. You look especially in the life of Jesus and in the death of Jesus, and you see that God is able to take people's sin and work it together to accomplish his promises. In Acts 2, 23, as Peter's preaching, he says, this Jesus, who was delivered up, speaking of his crucifixion, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter takes these two truths and places them side by side. It was God's plan for Jesus to die. But he holds these people accountable. You crucified and killed him. Lawless men. We see in Acts 4.27 the same truth. It says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all these antagonistic groups, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Not even some of the most heinous sin we can think of, the crucifixion of Jesus, not even that is outside of God's plan. There's mystery there. We know that God is not the author of sin. But we know that God is sovereign, not only over sinners, but even over their sin. And guys, this is true not just of this story here in Genesis. It's true even in your life. It's true when others fail you and sin against you. If others have sinned against you, if you've been the victim of deception, if you've been cheated by others, if you've been dishonored and deprived, harmed by people that should have loved you and cared for you, Take heart because you're actually in good company. I think Joseph would say, I understand what you're going through. I think some of the people in this chapter can understand what you're going through. I think Jesus can look at you and say, I understand what that's like. But know this, that God is not giving up. His plan is not put in jeopardy when others sin against you. In his grace, God is able to weave together the tragedies of life to bring about his good and glorious purposes. And what are those purposes? Your growth into Christ-likeness. The growth and advancement of his church, even when persecution comes. He's able to bring about the advancement of his kingdom. Nobody's going to stop Jesus when he rides in on a white horse. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can be confident that no matter what people do to us, no matter how they sin against us or harm us or mistreat us, that doesn't jeopardize God's promises or invalidate God's plans, and it cannot deprive us of God's blessings. Because God is sovereign, even over sinners and their sin. But there's also comfort for us here, too, because so often it's not other people who wreck our lives by their sin. Often it's we who wreck our own lives by our own sin. But take heart, if you belong to Christ, God will not cast you off. You are never beyond the reach of his grace. 
Look at how ugly chapter 27 is. But as we'll see in the end, the end of Jacob's life, God does not cast him off. He renames him. Counts him as his own. And blesses him. Even though, and and Jacob's not done screwing things up. We're going to see this over the next several weeks. But we, friends, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Some of you may feel like, you know what? I could never be a member at this church, or I could never serve in the church. I could never share the gospel with someone, or I could never do this or do that because I've made too many mistakes in my past. You, you don't know my story. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. God loves to redeem the most unlikely and take the weak, the failures, those that the world would never expect to be the ones God would use. God delights to do that because it shows that the power belongs to him, the credit goes to him, the glory goes to him, and not to us. So none of you, if you will come to Christ, take shelter in the cross, none of you are beyond the reach of God's grace. First John 1 John 1.9 gives us this comforting promise if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I do have to tell you, this is not a free pass to do whatever you want. Some of you may be thinking, well, if God is sovereign over sin and if his plans always come to fruition anyway and there's always grace for those who belong to him, I guess I don't have to worry so much about holiness. I guess that obedience isn't such a big deal. And my effort, I don't need to spend all this effort and energy trying to do what's right. I guess I can just kind of chill and live life how I want to. Guys, that's not at all what this passage is teaching. That's not at all what the Bible instructs. I want you to consider this morning the pain and misery that this family experienced because that is what you will experience if you follow your desires the way that they did rather than walking by faith, trusting in the promise of God. You have to wonder, what would have happened if Rebecca and Jacob had responded differently to Isaac's plan to bless Esau? Well, we know exactly what would have happened. God's plan, God's promise would have come to pass. But how would that have happened? We don't know. How would God have provided? We don't know. How would God have changed the path and the course of history to bring about his plan? We don't know. Because they never waited around to give God the chance to show his faithfulness. They took matters into their own hands. What we do know is if if they would have trusted God and walked by faith, there would have been much less heartache much less regret, much less pain. So if you're hearing me this morning talking about God's sovereign, redeeming grace and saying, I guess my sin's not that big a deal, I'm telling you, you will reap what you sow. And there will be pain. And that's why Hebrews tells us, don't follow in the footsteps of Esau. Because there's some things that you can confess and repent, but there's some things you can't change. There's some regrets that you can You can never change the outcome. This promise of God's faithfulness, of his grace, of his sovereignty, what it's meant to do is not weaken our our desire to become holy. It's not meant to dampen our enthusiasm to obey and our eagerness to put off sin and put on what is righteous. This promise of God's faithfulness and grace and sovereignty is meant to free us to obey. Say that, you know what, if I've stumbled and failed, I can put that behind me and I can choose to obey today because God will be gracious and redeem and he will work this out. It means we're set free and we're given hope that when others sin against us or we fail, we know that God's purposes will come to pass and God's grace is able to restore us. His grace is meant to thrust us forward in grateful obedience and holy worship. I love how Paul puts it to Titus that the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live sober, upright lives that are acceptable to God. That's what grace does. It purifies us and it energizes us to live for the Lord. We'll wrap things up just by mentioning these powerful words of God from Isaiah 46. And if you ever read Isaiah, I think you get one of the biggest, most powerful pictures of who God is. In Isaiah 46, 9, he says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Even if you fail, 
even if other people fail you. We can be confident that that's who our God is. Sinful desires lead to conflict. But God's sovereign plan is greater than our sin. Aren't you thankful for that truth this morning? It's so comforting. The Apostle Paul captured this in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What a relief and comfort that this is who our God is. May his faithful grace move us to trust and move us towards obedience as we seek to walk by faith in his promises. Let's go with that truth in our hearts this week. Lord, we thank you that though we often fail and though others may sin against us, we can be confident that your plans and purposes will come to pass. God, I pray that you would make us wise this morning. Enable us by your spirit to walk by faith and not by sight. Keep us from trusting our own senses the way that Isaac did. Pray that you would help us to lay down our preferences and our opinions and trust your plan, unlike Isaac. I pray, God, that you would help us to wait on you rather than taking things into our own hands the way that Rebecca did. I pray, God, that we would resist the fearful counsel of others who urge us to compromise and urge us to sin. Help us not to compromise the way that Jacob did and do things that we know do not please you. God, give us desires that are holy. Give us a desire to follow you and to trust you so that we can be spared the pain and the grief that comes when we sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. And God, for any here this morning who feel that their life is too messy, that their failure is too numerous to ever be used by you, I pray, Lord, that they would catch a glimpse today of your faithfulness and your grace. Lord, help them to see how massive your mercy truly is. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cleanse us, to wash us, that you are able to make us new, to redeem us and use us for your purposes. Lord, give us faith to believe this this morning. And God, if there's any today who don't yet know you, God, please help them to understand that the problem is inside. It's in our hearts. And that the solution is outside of us. You are the solution. You are the only one who can save. And it's only through the confession of our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ that we can be cleansed and restored to a right relationship with you. I pray for any who are unsaved this morning that they would recognize their need and come to you in faith to receive your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.